Welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. My name is Lauren. And I'm Adam. On this podcast, we want to help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of a lot of our traditional ways of thinking. We're learning to deconstruct the religious lenses we once saw the world through, breaking down topics like purity culture, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like feminism, equality, and love. Stepping away from our evangelical church background, all the while leaning into God and moving forward in our faith. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have Nikki Mayu. She is a queer ex-evangelical writer and educator from the strangest city in the deep south, New Orleans. She completed her MFA in creative writing at the University of New Orleans and works in special education advocacy. She also performs public storytelling and produces Sanctuary, a performance series uplifting stories of religious trauma and deconstruction. Her work has been featured in Infection House, Dinner Bell, Room 220, Ginger Zine, and elsewhere. Her debut chapbook, Ordinary Time, is available from Tilted House. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited uh, to have this conversation, sit down with y'all virtually. Yeah, us too. And we have followers who were really excited that we were talking to you and um, some of the, the main questions that we were getting, uh, to ask you, you know, when we had posted that was how did, how did she get where she is now? Like what, what took place? So <laughs> of course that's a very loaded question. Yeah. Uh, we realized, but a good one, though. <laughs> it is a good one. And that's essentially what we do on this podcast. You know, we, we do talk about people's stories and kind of where they came from and where they are now and how they got there. So, of course, like I said, loaded question, but we would love to hear a little bit about your story and, you know, growing up religious and and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like the older I get, the less uh, I feel like I, like the longer the story gets. So, like, the harder it is to cliff notes it. Yeah, totally. But but I'm going to try. So, yeah, I grew up raised evangelical, um, in the suburbs of New Orleans. Uh, my mom was, came from like a family that always went to Lutheran churches, but were kind of nominally, not nominally, that's probably not accurate, but culturally very Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was a distinct sort of living that out versus, um, my dad who was, uh, like radically saved in an mm-hmm. evangelical church in his twenties. Got it. Got it. So, um, but together my mom and dad, um, had a very devout evangelical faith. They weren't very, um, tied to denominations. So throughout my childhood, I've gone, I did go to Lutheran church for a while. Um, we went to, we would attend like various events at, at any given Protestant church, really Catholics, just where we drew the line. Um, <laughs> got it. Got it. And, but really feel like my worldview was formed in like a Southern Baptist youth group, which was where, mm-hmm. um, where my like 
my devoutness got developed as a young person, like in middle school and high school. Yeah. Um, but I did, I like prayed a prayer of salvation with my dad on the front porch at age four or five. Hmm. Um, and I remember that conversation wow. and was baptized uh, as a teenager in my Baptist youth group by my youth minister in the church. And in that baptism, my youth minister talked about how uh, he phrased it very positively and very kindly, but basically talked about how how wonderful it was to have me in youth group because I brought all the weird kids to youth group with me. <laughs> oh, no. um, nice. Yeah, I brought all of the I brought all of the community theater friends and all of my friends that look like they just robbed a hot topic. Yeah, Amazing. Of Amazing. All of the, so all me of the and my crew. Leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I really upped, I really upped like the Jinko jeans percentage oh, of the youth God. group on, on any given Wednesday night. The amount of dragon print jeans that I owned is, is way too high. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I was, I was very, grew up very devoutly Christian. That was something that I didn't feel. I, I know that I was indoctrinated now, and believe that I was at the time, it, it felt like I was very actively choosing that. But of course, like you can argue how active can a choice be when the other choice is eternal conscious torment. So, um, yeah, I believed very, very devoutly from a young age. Um, I also struggled starting at age nine. Um, I mean, I still, I still experience this, but, uh, developed pretty severe obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. Um, it went undiagnosed and the only, and like my parents brought me to a Christian counselor about it, Mm. but that, um, did not result in a whole lot of helpful strategies. It was a lot of like, um, my family and the adults around me talked about it as like, I have a problem with worrying. I worry too much. And, um, I remember distinctly being a spirit of fear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my parents never they were, they were a supportive, they were very supportive and they did everything they knew how to do. And they were trying to provide me with like practical tools as well as like spiritual encouragement. So like they, they did a great job, all things considered. It was something they had never encountered, but I do remember uh, like a pretty formative moment of, of navigating like that anxiety with religion was like, I remember being at Chuck E. Cheese at like nine years old when it was first coming up and it was really severe and it was really noticeable to everyone around me. Um, my grandmother giving me a little cameo necklace that had an angel on it. And it was a very, on the surface, a very sweet gesture. Um, she told me that it was a necklace to remind me that like, God is going to take care of me all of the time and I don't need to worry. But then it was like undergirded with the second part of that statement, which was like, so, you know, make sure that make sure that you trust that and you're not worrying too much because worry mm-hmm. is actually a sin mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. because you're saying that you don't trust God to take care of you when you worry. And then you and worry like, cool, cool, cool. that you're worrying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so that was, that was some formative experiences of my, of my childhood with religion. Um, I stayed really devout um, all through college. I was heavily involved in college campus ministry I was a youth, uh, not a youth, uh, a worship leader at different points in time. Um, and 
and then married a, a punk rock pastor. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, my dear husband, Mark, who um, was left New Orleans, like at, as a result of Hurricane Katrina, landed in Nashville and found his like really formative Christian community there. Yeah. Um, with, you know, a church there where everyone had tattoos and everyone listened to, mm-hmm. to punk rock and metal and he fit right in and, um, and found really genuine people there, like, like really genuine spiritual community, um, for all of the things that we might look back and say are flawed about it and harmful about it, um, still have really beautiful relationships with, with a handful of those folks. So, um, he and I met and married fairly young. Um, I was 23 when we got married and the plan was that, you know, we were already socially and in our politics, like rapidly radicalizing leftist. Mm. Um, we read a lot of Shane Claiborne. We did a lot of dumpster diving. We, <laughs> um, wore a lot of Carhartts into the ground. Yes. And, uh, and so we wanted to plant like a house church. We wanted to plant like a, uh, a radical, punk house church in downtown New Orleans. And, and it was in that environment, um, within the first couple of years of our marriage that I started to deconstruct. So mm-hmm. I started to allow myself to entertain the doubts, the deep, deep theological doubts that I had, and also allowed myself to start, uh, confronting and embracing my queerness, which mm-hmm. had always been something I had known about myself since like age six. Mm. Yeah. So, and, and Mark was an incredible partner and an incredible safe space to do that with. So I was like, Mark was one of the first people that I came out to as queer. And, um, and I joke I, when I tell this story on stage, like at the, the storytelling performances I've done, um, I make the joke that he, he did say, I know. Uh, and then I make the joke that he's like, I know Nikki, you, you have like an extraordinary amount of vests in your closet, like (laughs) an extraordinary amount, too much for a straight woman. Um, but yeah, he, he said that he figured or that he sensed. And so like, it was a really, really safe place to, to start allowing myself to think critically about my own identity and to think critically about the theology that I had kind of accepted carte blanche, um, since I was four. Mm. Um, it was really scary to do that because we were in ministry. We were, Mark was an ordained pastor. There were a lot of early conversations about like my path versus his and like how this may look and how our relationship is going to look. And, um, it just was, was never really a question for us that, that this was something I needed to do. And then, and then Mark started to independent of me, um, but a little bit, a little bit behind me at the beginning. Uh, but I remember him saying in some of those early conversations that he's like, I, I know, I know that like deep down you have this belief that, that like God is an angry God that, that hates you. Mm. And so whatever you do, however, we didn't know the word deconstruct at the time. He's like, but however, however you get rid of that belief, I don't care where you land. Mm. Like any place you land is better than a life live thinking that there is a God and that, that God hates you. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, so that was, that was the foundation I needed. Um, that was the, the safe place I needed to, to start doing that work. So, um, started deconstructing and like, it really was kind of a a smooth, (laughs) a smooth, smooth gradual descent. Right, right. Um, yeah, there, there, there just wasn't a whole lot of looking back, honestly, after that. Um, and then when we had, when we had kids, uh, we have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old when, when I had my daughter, Eleanor, and she started to be, you know, get to toddler age, um, apparently when push comes to shove, I'm just not going to do it is the thing. I'm just not going, I'm not going to, it, I'm not going to introduce this theology yeah. to my right. kid. Yeah. Um, it just felt absurd, absurd to me to particularly health theology. It, mm-hmm. it felt uh, absolutely outrageous to present this to a child as truth when I had every, every confidence to doubt it. And I had yeah. evidence that it harmed. Yeah. Um, and so I wasn't going to do it. So. <laughs> yeah. And that's um, a hard decision to make just because it's like, it, yeah. it's such a, we've talked a little bit about this where it's like, we are appreciative that we have something to have deconstructed from because we needed a place to, to really springboard. But yeah, but to, to, to appreciate that and, and move forward from that. It, it's it's hard to not picture yourself yourself still passing those things along. So that's that's huge. Well, that's I mean, but I I think as far as like hell goes, I feel like that's I like I can gladly kiss that oh, goodbye. Yeah, of course. But then the mm-hmm. like maybe the other traditions and maybe just like I don't know maybe would be difficult. But yeah, what was that? What was that like for you and your husband when you know your daughter was two? Was there just like a, a, a conversation, a sentence, or was it just a knowing of no, we're not, we're not doing this, we're not passing this on? Like, what was that for you guys? Yeah, by the time, you know, by the time she was even approaching an age where we thought that might be a conversation, um, Mark had caught up to me and then, <laughs> and then like sprinted into <laughs> atheism. Got it. Okay. Um, where like, I still, I don't know. I, I just use agnostic, um, because I like to leave the light on for, for magic and yeah, like wondrous things. And he, he would argue that like, there's plenty of, of wonder, um, in atheism as well, but yeah. he, he, we process things very differently. So, yeah. um, he just one night, <laughs> just one night we, we were watching, um, a documentary about hell houses actually. Oh yeah. And there was this just really, really intense story of this like single father, um, who was volunteering at this church. I don't remember the specifics, but I remember Mark really connecting with that character and him just looking at me and being like, I'm done. Like, <laughs> wow, that's it. Like I'm done. <sighs> no, absolutely not. And and he never really looked back from that either. Um, so we had conversation. It was kind of a given at that point that like this was not something. We talked about the flip side of that. We talked about how we needed to we needed to allow space for our kids to pursue whatever religious path they consciously choose for themselves. Totally. Um, and we we try to do a good job of that. We try to be really cognizant when we talk to Eleanor. 
who wants to talk about religion and politics literally every time we get in the car. <laughs> it's a new existential question. Amazing. Um, and we try really hard to make sure that we are clear. We're clear when we're providing things that have um, a basis of science or research. We're clear when we're providing things that are our own opinion. Mm-hmm. We're and we're clear that like we want you to take in this information and find out your own information and you are free to, to believe um, whatever rings true in your heart. Yeah. Um, and that's worked out pretty well. Yeah. I'm curious. That's worked out pretty well. Is, is this, so you've done a lot of work in telling stories of, of harm that's come from churches. And does that come from a place of like for yourself, like you would have needed that for you? Or is that something that is like you'd want to be able to tell true, honest stories for the next generation, for your kids? Um, a little bit of both, I think. Uh, the the way that I, I think the motivation behind creating Sanctuary, which is the storytelling series that I do, yeah. was this sense that like once I had pretty well deconstructed, realizing that like when you convert to a religion or a faith, there's typically a ritual, there's a celebration, you are welcomed into a community, there's a mark, a marker of that passage that's usually like really joyful and special and like honored, Mm. but people's deconstruction or deconversion out of a faith is very rarely acknowledged, celebrated. There's, you know, there's no ritual to honor that. And a lot of times it's done because of that. There's stick, there's a lot of stigma around it. There's a lot of shame that can be around it. And I felt so damn good about my post evangelical life and the joy and the abiding like peace I had found coming out of it that I wanted, I wanted to create the inverse of that for other people that might feel the same. I wanted a place where people could come and tell stories because they are, they are stories of harm that people have experienced in religion, but they are also stories of the, the other side of that, journey of like finding something that does fit whatever that is or like coming home to yourself and celebrating that and so that's that was my reasoning for wanting to create that so it was for me because it was something I really wanted um, but it turns out a lot of other people really wanted it too yeah well you know I could just say ditto because that's literally (laughs) why we created this podcast and our community too because yeah, I, it, it was just as much as it was for me as it was for everyone else, which is why I say we're about stories and we wanted to hear your story and, you know, how you yeah. got to where you are because it's important. People's stories matter. Actually, you, you talk about that. You say your, your story, right? Story is your religion. Is that, mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. Is that still something that you, you kind of like live by? Yeah, I do. I think it's, I think storytelling is a type of like quantifiable magic in the world because when we listen to stories and we emotionally connect with them, like our body, like neurochemically, we have responses as if we are the person experiencing those events. Like we see a, a profound film and we cry when something Mm. sad happens like real tears or our heart beats fast and like our adrenaline shoots up when 
you know, Keanu Reeves is trying to stop the the bus. Right. Um, <laughs> right. We like very real phenomenon happen in our body just by connecting to mm. a story. Yep. And that, and as, as a writer, that felt like, that felt like a theology I could, I could roll with. Um, that felt like a, a way to, to ground myself in a worldview of like, what do I actually value? What do I think is important? What do I want to spend the one life I know I get doing? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. As, as, um, so I, I don't know if you know, but I am indigenous and a, a lot of the, the culture and tradition is mm-hmm. storytelling. It's passed down orally through stories and messages. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I can affirm, I can definitely affirm that and confirm that that's, it, it is kind of like its own, um, religious structure in, in a, in a sense, a way of, um, keeping, tradition and keeping people alive is by, um, is by telling stories. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely love that when I was like just fully stalking you, (laughs) I was like, yeah, that, that feels right to me. Um, and you're a poet too. And so, yeah, of course, like you are writing and the way you speak and the way you tell a story really, really matters too. And, you know, we, we don't get to speak to a lot of couples who have, not just survived, but thrived after deconstruction. And it's really exciting to speak with you and, you know, hear that that is your experience and um, you have children. And um, one thing that I'm interested in, especially because your, your kid, Eleanor, she is just very, it seems like I I read some of the quotes that she has said and um, Mm -hmm. you mentioning she's a very like inquisitive (laughs) little kid. Um, I'm curious for you with the, you know, with Sanctuary and with all your storytelling and other people talking about their stories and potentially traumas and things like that. Is there a, a, is there like a shielding of your kids to the, those stories in any way or, or do they hear all those things and kind of take it all in too? Um, there's not a lot of shielding. There kind of can't be if I want to maintain honesty and integrity in in our relationship with her because we have to talk a lot about how how mama and papa and now like she she has a sense of her own values like how those values often diverge pretty significantly from our Mark and I's extended family's values. Right. Um, we have to talk about that. Uh, we have to talk about, she's asked me a lot of questions about my queer identity. Mm. Um, we go to, I mean, we go to protests and marches. Um, we talk about, we talk about racism. We talk about capitalism. Uh, and I try to do those things in, in age appropriate ways, not like telling her graphic details of traumatic events. Um, you know, when, like not trying to tell her those things that, that she doesn't need to hear in order to understand the concept, but we're going to talk about the concept. Um, and so that's just kind of a normalized part of her life. Um, you know, part of, part of our journey as well, like post deconstruction is that Mark and I are non-monogamous. Um, we both have other like significant partnerships in our life. Our kids know those people, they are important adults in their life. 
Um, we talk about that with Eleanor. Um, not really Lucas yet because he's four and it's it's just another person giving him attention. He doesn't yeah. care. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't think <laughs> even if it was something I wanted to do, coming out of evangelicalism, especially coming out of the closet, my value of authenticity is too strong for me to be comfortable shielding them from complexity. Yeah. Cause that's really just what it is. It's just complexity of life. Yeah. So it sounds like she can handle it. (laughs) She can, she, I mean, it's not without its, it's not without its cost, you know, like she, she had some real questions the other day about literally like what life is going to look like for her on this planet with climate change when she is an elder um, that I can't answer and are really scary and no one should have to think about. But, but we navigate those conversations from a place of, of being okay if we don't have all the answers and trying to acknowledge big feelings when they come up and sitting with big feelings and not feeling like we have to arrive at a perfect answer. And I think that's the main difference uh, that I see in like her childhood versus mine with difficult topics is in mine, like all of the adults in my life were scrambling to give me the perfect answer to whatever the question was. Yeah. Um, And there just isn't always a perfect answer. There rarely is. So yeah, I love yeah. that. I mean, Adam and I don't have kids yet, but we're constantly having conversations. We were literally yeah. today having conversations about it because we were watching a show last night and this woman, she was like, I'm not going to teach my kids about tooth fairy, blah, blah, blah. It just got us like talking about tooth fairy and talking about religion, <laughs> from tooth fairy to religion, um, about like, you know, giving them the space to, you know, ask them the questions like, well, what do you think? And, um, but then also at the same time, like I know me, I think about me as a kid, I, I would have enjoyed having that openness, but also at the same time, there's still a part of me that would be like, well, well, but like, what do you think? And I think kids are like, you can offer a, Mm -hmm. your, your answer. (laughs) But then like you had mentioned, I, I loved that you said that you're very open about, whether something is your opinion or whether something's like, you know, based off of science or um, history or anything Mm -hmm. like that. I think, I think making that, um, that, that clear, like what, what the answer is coming from um, is, is really cool. It's very, I think very important. Yeah. It's, it's felt really important. Um, And it's, it's definitely something we've tried to do. We talk about, I, I stole this tool that I was introduced to when I was teaching um, uh, teaching sex ed curriculum to students with disabilities, mm-hmm. which is this idea of like a range of values, and you can present that as a as a, uh, a sentence starter. So, mm-hmm. like when you're talking about something that's values based, you can say, "Well, for me, or for some, mm-hmm. it's this way. For others, it's this way. And for you, you'll have to decide." how yeah. you feel about it. Yeah. Well, I think it's just so important to instill confidence cool. in their own intuition as well. Totally. I, 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 mm-hmm. That's that's one major thing that was a, a roadblock for my deconstruction was confidence in my own ability to, to determine what is worth believing in and what's worth claiming mm-hmm. and what's, what's, what is worth just having 
having ambiguous feelings or just saying, well, I don't believe in that, but not claiming something that I do believe in. Yeah. And and I think to be able to arm your kids and to be, be able to arm the world with an ability to embrace their intuition so that they can mm-hmm. move forward without having to deconstruct from something damaging is, is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And I still, like, I still have trouble in times of like high stress when my OCD kicks in, it's still very difficult for me when I feel, when I feel a panicked feeling about something, when I feel an intense fear or a a panicked thought, um, sometimes it's still really difficult for me to discern if the feeling is scary because it's genuinely scary and undesirable to me, or the feeling is scary because it's like conviction or it's what I ultimately want that I haven't been able to face. Mm. Um, That nuance is really screwed up for me (laughs) by my life experiences. And so sometimes it takes, I was just talking to Mark about this earlier today, how like if I'm in that state and I'm having like a panic attack or I'm, I'm really high stress Sometimes I genuinely do not know how I feel, even about big things yeah. that you would think are a given. Right. Um, and and I've learned I just have to, I just have to wait it out. I just have to like ride my nervous system out to the to the last stop of the station, and um, and wait to be in a different headspace to like assess it. Yeah, I, I'm sure with constantly leaving space for people to share their stories of trauma like you said that has become your your faith in in a way mm-hmm. that it it feels honest to you and it feels real to you and your body does take on those stories and it does react like you said to to hearing stories and seeing things unfold and does that does that bring up triggers for you does that does that present a challenge for you in your spiritual journey or is it something that's like how do you how do you balance that out and quantify that against your own experiences that you've had and and subjecting yourself to to hearing that and experiencing those those stories? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't ever feel triggered by stories at sanctuary or by the ex evangelical community that I interact with online. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I would feel triggered if I heard a bunch of, let's say like, uh, you know, quote unquote, like ex gay testimonies, mm, like sure. maybe, yeah, I don't know. Cause I don't seek those things out. Right. right. Um, but there, I do know that I like now I'm just so far removed that it just doesn't really even come up. And I'm, and I'm very secure in like what I think and believe about those things now, but early in my deconstruction, I did like very actively not, seek out certain stories because I was, I knew that I would have the tendency to latch on to something and contort it into something else in my brain. Like I just know how my brain works. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. So like while I was sitting with deconstructing health theology, I would meter out the resources I was reading. I wouldn't read too much at one time. I would, um, and I would try to find like the most unbiased, like I would you know, look up like a Yale lecture on <laughs> right. the New Testament before I would read like a blog by Whoever. the Gospel Coalition yeah. or a blog by like a really, I don't know, like angry atheist or something. Like I would try to find 
something with like the least amount of undue influence totally. because I knew how easily influenced my brain is about yeah. things like that. So, yeah. But now, um, now I really love hearing stories and I have, and the, my capacity to take in that kind of information has like grown tremendously because I'm, you know, like almost a decade now deconstructed, yeah. like almost a decade of like living in an entirely new worldview, an entirely new value system that I have a decade of evidence that mm. this is better. Yeah. <laughs> like for me, um, this is, there is hard data to show that like my life, my sense of peace, my sense of, of autonomy is exponentially better mm. post fundamentalism than it ever was inside of it. Yeah. So it feels a lot more unshakable now. Yeah. 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 I, I can resonate with that. I'm like, well, the equation gives me the answer that this is better. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it, but it does. Like, it it totally does. I, I really resonate with that. Um, and okay, so something you had mentioned just briefly was that you and your husband are non-monogamous. And I'm, yeah. I'm curious to just kind of get into that for a second. When did you guys, was that always a thing for you? Or was there a certain point after deconstruction that you had that conversation and decided to become non-monogamous? Yeah. So the second one, um, it, <laughs> it was not something we started out doing. It was not something I knew was even, uh, a way that, that someone could ethically live, uh, until, so we've, we've been non-monogamous for about four years now, a little over, yeah. but we started talking about the idea of being non-monogamous, like, like five and a half years. We mm -hmm. talked about it a long time. Um, with a lot of care and a lot of intentionality. And it started, it really started with like a conversation about my queerness and about like my grief and sadness that like, I didn't have a chance to explore queer relationships as a young mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And that there was a lot of like just grief and anger that I had, that that part of my identity was not something I was allowed or given permission to access. And and so, and it was really like Mark prompting me to think about like what that could look like. Like the rule book has been thrown out for mm -hmm. what, what defines a relationship and what containers relationships get put in. Right. So if we've already thrown out the rule book, like, why don't we talk about what could, what could work for us? Or like, what could not only just work? Cause we always had a healthy marriage. Like we had a good relationship. So it wasn't even about like trying to make something work, but yeah. it was about like, what experiences do we want out of life? And like, mm -hmm. how can those fit into our dynamic and what could that look like? And so what started out as like very much a conversation about being like trying non-monogamy as a way for me to experience like a facet of my queerness. Cause you, you do not have to actively be in a queer relationship to, to be queer. I want to make that like very clear. Like yeah. you are queer enough always, always, always. Mm. Um, but what started as like a conversation about my desire for that kind of evolved into a conversation of like what our new values were about relationships, like what makes a good relationship, what um, what boundaries do we put on them? What boundaries do we not want to put on them anymore? Right. And the purity culture is out the door. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely is out the door now. Um, so that's how it started. And like, we, 
Uh, we have been practicing it for, like I said, about four years. Um, we did a lot more like casual dating at the beginning as we were just trying to figure out what we even wanted, um, what, what felt good and like what felt like an enhancement to our life. And um, so we did that for a couple years, which was really nice in as someone who dated very little, like had a some total of three boyfriends, two were like literally a couple months in high school, uh, before Mark and, um, yeah, had never dated, had certainly never dated as someone who was like a grown adult who goes to bars and (laughs) you're only two years past the legal limit on that one. Yeah. So like, that was really enjoyable and a really good experience for both of us to, to, to date, just to date. Um, but then we've kind of like shifted now into this, like, like what I joke about is like grown folks polyamory now where, <laughs> um, you know, I, we have two kids now, our kids are older, our lives are really full. And so like now what it looks like is, is like I said, we have, um, Mark has a, a very significant partner. I have a very significant partner that both of those people are local and very, like we see them multiple times a week, yeah. um, And then I have another partner uh, who's long distance, who is also very dear. And, and I'm kind of, I'm saturated. Like that's, that's where I'm landing. Um, Cause those are, those are really big. It's, it's funny. Like sometimes people talk about, people have the misconception that people who practice polyamory have a fear of commitment or like can't commit or inherently (laughs) unfaithful where I've really found it to be the opposite. They're like, like I'm people, faithful to this many people. Can yeah. you like, hello, I, I'm more faithful. I love commitment. I <laughs> have commitments with multiple people <laughs> that feel really good and solid and secure and like bring so much love and fulfillment to my life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what, that's what life looks like now. That's awesome. That's really cool. How do you get to talk about this often? Because I feel like this is very like very rare, and I don't really get to. I don't see it um, in a lot of spaces. Hey everyone, want to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode and rate and review the podcast as it helps others find this online community. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. I, I feel like I talk about it constantly in my friend circles. Um, it, like I said, we live, we live in New Orleans. It is les élèves en roulet, um, let the good times roll. (laughs) Right. Uh, probably more of our friends are non-monogamous than not at this point. So we're all relationship nerds. I feel like we talk about polyamory and emotional intelligence and all of this stuff, like all the time, but I don't talk about it. Like it's only been the past, um, year or so that I've felt comfortable talking about it more publicly online. And a lot of that is, is lingering stigma, especially as parents, um, a lot of lingering stigma about what that must look like with kids, um, people projecting what they, what they think is or isn't healthy about how to raise kids. But, um, I don't know. The pandemic just, I don't care anymore. Like a lot of things don't feel, (laughs) don't feel (laughs) as important to care about. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's really awesome. I, I, I'm kind of curious what, 
um, you would say, because I actually have recently had conversations with um, uh, a couple folks who are, uh, are pansexual, but they're in a mm-hmm. heterosexual relationship and they, it kind of similar to you, like always knew, but didn't, uh, did not have the mental space or emotional capacity or sp- spiritual safety to ever accept that and now they're married and they love their partner but um it's it's now they feel like they never got to express that is that something that you feel that like would you give advice to them to have this conversation to explore like non-monogamy or or is it different for every relationship? I don't know. I just, I've been talking to a couple of people actually about this specifically. So I'm wondering if you've heard from other folks that have had similar experiences and they don't really know what to do now that they accept themselves and they're in a heterosexual relationship. Yeah. So it feels scary to give anyone advice about something as high stakes as their marriage. Mm. (laughs) Um, For sure. For sure. For sure. And so, you know, I won't explicitly do that, but I think what I would encourage people to do is, um, my friend, my friend, Erica Smith, um, on Instagram talks a lot about and offers like, uh, p- queer purity culture dropout like support groups for yeah. that where this comes up a lot okay. and offers like a ton of ways a ton of suggested ways that like people can access their queerness and express their queerness um, that don't have to involve like having additional romantic or sexual relationships like literally and just like you can you can change up the type of ethical porn you can you consume mm-hmm. you can yeah. um you can like plug into your local queer community you can um you can switch up the way that you present with your clothing you can queer flag you can do all of these things that may scratch that itch for you like that may be yeah. uh that may be i don't even want to say enough cuz it's not like a it's it's not a slider like There's that no but like yeah right but that may be what you're looking for yeah. and that may feel good and complete and whole for you um if it doesn't and if you find that like it's something that just keeps coming up that like that you feel like you need to have that conversation i mean like that that is what we did um yeah. cuz that yeah. is what came up for me and so i think that every relationship is different. Every relationship dynamic is different. And monogamous relationships are no more, uh, are no more like inherently stable or trustworthy or like with a clear roadmap. Monogamy is no more that with a, you know, I think over 50% divorce rate or something like (laughs) monogamy is, is no more that than polyamory is it's different and like polyamory has the disadvantage at least right now of there being so far fewer cultural scripts for what Mm. it can look like Mm. there's only one there's only currently like one uh longitudinal study of a cohort of polyamorous families where like the adults are polyamorous and they're raising kids that the researcher has done over like the past 20 years it's like the only research that exists on that right now yeah um wow so I, I guess I would say it's 
it's awesome to be able to have the conversation if it's a conversation you want to have. If you, I think anyone that like chooses out of a, out of a, uh, monogamous marriage, particularly one that came out of evangelicalism, um, if you're going to pursue non-monogamy, you just have to know that you are, you're trailblazing. Like you are, you, I, the, the phrase I use often with my partner, Ileana is, uh, creating new worlds. Like we are, we are creating new worlds, um, together in our polycule, like all of us who are connected, um, in what our definitions of family are, in what our definitions of commitment and intimacy look like. Right. We're, we're creating that. And to me, that's exciting. Yeah. And it's something I want to sign up for. Beyond exploring the like vastness of, of what relationships look like for you, I'm sure that the relationships that you do have have also expanded your spirituality just beyond being able to like yeah. explore yourself some. Is there any anything that you would like to share from those relationships and those conversations that have opened you up in different ways? Yeah, um, lots. And like <laughs> the another value that I really appreciate about non-monogamy is there's a lot of talk in that community about um, not putting romantic and sexual relationships on a pedestal above all other types of relationships. Right. So, you know, my, my friendships, my intimate close friendships are like just as important of a relationship to me in my life as part of my chosen family. Yeah. So I'd say like, that's the thing that comes to mind is like over the course of the, the years that we deconstructed a lot of how we did that was, frequent, like several times a week, our core group of friends who were also all ex-evangelical and deconstructing, um, getting together at our house and like having dinner, um, playing board games after the kids go to bed and just like talking, like talking through, like holding space and holding community, um, to process like what we were going through. And so that phenomenon of like human beings doing that together in community is is one of my strongest values. And it's the place that like, that I feel the most transcendent, like Mm. in community and then like thinking about the universe and like space and nature and science. I feel really transcendent thinking about those things too. Totally. Um, I love that. I, I, again, I, I feel like I really resonate with that. And, and you even, uh, posted recently something you had said um, on your, I think on your last story or your last Instagram post that you had to cement a chosen family. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's really like, I can see it and feel it whenever you're speaking about it, that that's like what you have done and that's what you are still doing. It's, it's choosing the people that you're surrounding yourself with. And, and, and we're not, we're really not taught in the society that friendships are just as important as like romantic or sexual partners um, or relationships. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's awesome that you're able to kind of pave the way, like you said, you're like the little pave maker way maker <laughs> um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, I, I really admire it. And I love when you said that, um, just like very briefly, you said back whenever you were you're talking about um, kind of giving advice and um, to other queer folk and potentially those who are in a heterosexual re- relationship. Um, you had mentioned you are queer enough. And mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. I think that's 
again, that's what so many people like are needing to be validated in, especially as hopefully I'm very hopeful that that this, um, that society is becoming and, and people and culture is becoming more and more embodied and learning more of who they are and embracing themselves. And, um, and I think that's just, yeah, I think that's very, um, it's, again, it's just kind of poetic of, of you <laughs> to <laughs> speak on that way and speak in that way. Um, but yeah, I, I know you do have a, a book out and, um, and they can find it on what was the, what was the website? It's tiltedhouse.org. Okay. Uh, Tilted House is the press. Um, and yeah, we just ordered, we sold out of the first printing and just ordered, uh, the second printing just came in. So it's hot off the independent press. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, um, we'll make sure that people, um, can check that out. I'll be sure to leave the link in the podcast, um, bio, but, um, yeah, Nikki, this has just been so awesome speaking with you and just getting to know you and, yeah. um, hear how you speak. We, you know, we talk to lots of people and, and I, I love hearing just the way you talk about life. It's, it's really inspiring and it helps give me and I know so many other people, um, language to kind of express how they see the world. And, um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Those are really kind words. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being on and thank you all for listening. Um, go check out her work and until next time. Bye.